Glad to see you this morning. If you're a guest with us today, why, uh, we're thrilled to death that you're here. If you're worshiping with us online, we're thrilled that you've tuned in too. Please participate as much as you can with us as we begin today a new series called Old Testament Postcards. And if you can find your way to the little book of Obadiah in the Old Testament, we're going to be there. So if you've got your Bibles, why, turn with me there. <clears throat> Summer's here, and it's time for vacations. It is postcard season. I don't know why it is. We send postcards early in our vacations time, but we always beat them home. I don't know where postcards wait till, till they get sent, but you always beat postcards home. I always leave on vacation with good intentions. I, I, I'm planning on writing to family and friends, never get it done. But I always enjoy getting postcards from family and friends, seeing where they are and enjoying what they are, are up to. <laughs> I always have to chuckle when I get a postcard of a beautiful sunshine, sandy beach, tropical kind of paradise, and the message on the inside says, the weather is beautiful, wish you were here. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, can't you just see this family? They're on those sandy beaches, they're wading through the ocean waters, and one of the kids looks up at Dad and says, Dad, you know, I really wish the preacher were here. <laughs> I know better. <clears throat> Regardless, it's nice to be remembered with a postcard. <laughs> I heard about a guy who had written so many postcards that on the last one he accidentally wrote this, the weather is here, wish you were beautiful. <laughs> In the Old Testament, there are several books that get overlooked. One of the reasons they get overlooked is they are grouped in a category called the minor prophets. When you see the word minor, you just kind of naturally say, they must not be important. But remember this, they are minor only in the length of their writing, not in their importance. Also, I think we dismiss them because they are short. Uh, long books we take, boy, they, this prophet had something important to say, but short books we sometimes think must not be anything really important. It's kind of like a postcard, sort of whimsical, has very little value for those of us in the 21st century. But I'm telling you, nothing could be farther from the truth. The, the minor prophets are rich in the lessons that apply to our day and culture. Just because we're separated by hundreds of years, centuries, sometimes thousands, doesn't mean that they don't apply because human nature is so similar. So, over the next five weeks of this summer break, we're going to take a look at the five shortest Old Testament prophet books, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi. And you might be surprised of all the good things that we can learn from an Old Testament prophet's postcard. The first one we're going to take a look at is Obadiah, the shortest. His postcard is only 21 verses long. Now, when we talk about prophets and prophecy, uh, what exactly do we mean? <clears throat> Well, I want you to know that it's probably simpler than what you think. A prophet in the Old Testament was, was merely God's spokesman. When we hear the word prophet today or we hear the word prophecy today, we naturally associate words that have to do with some future event. Now, it's true. The prophets sometimes told of future events, but they told those future events because that's what God gave them to tell. A prophet was merely a spokesman for God. God gave the prophet the message. The, mes the prophet then proclaimed it to the people on God's behalf. 
when you take a look at the prophets, we oftentimes think that they were exclusively lined up to teach God's people. Now, most of them did teach the Israelites, the, the Hebrew nation, but you'd be surprised how many of them had a message for other nations, sometimes, sometimes nations that were enemies to God's people, the Hebrew nation. This book of Obadiah is sort of like that. It is written both to the Hebrew people, but it is specifically addressed to the Edomites, to the people who lived in Edom. And you say, oh my goodness, why do I need to know about Edom? I mean, who knows where it was, who they were. Why do I need to hear about Edom? It's because truth is truth. And, and truth exceeds generations and cultures and time periods and languages. And because human nature doesn't change from generation to generation and period of time to period of time, people are people wherever they are. And so what God writes to Edom has some intense lessons for us today. It reminds me that God cares about all people. Yes, the, the Hebrew nation had a unique role in God's plan. It was the nation through whom the Messiah would come, but the Messiah came for all people, and God cared about all people then. God cares about all people today. Now, I got to tell you, I find the story of Edom really fascinating. <laughs> You're saying, boy, this is, this is going to get boring real quick. Well, I hope not. I want to give you some history, however, because to understand why Obadiah wrote what he did, you need to understand the background of, of Edom's history. And, and we need to go back to the 25th chapter of Genesis where we pick up the story of Abraham's son, Isaac, who is married to a lovely woman by the name of Rebekah, but they were unable to have a family. Genesis 25 verse 21 begins like this, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger." When the twins are born, the first one comes out, and he is of a reddish cast. They name him Esau, which means red. The younger, Jacob, comes out clutching the heel of his older twin brother. He is named Jacob, which means supplanter or deceiver. Now, unlike most twins that I'm familiar with, these two didn't get along, not just from birth, but even prior to birth. They were at odds all of their lives. Jacob stole the blessing from Esau the older. Esau sought to kill Jacob, and so Jacob ran, and it went back and forth and back and forth. King David conquered the Edomites. Under King Jehoshaphat, the Edomites overthrew that conquering and became a free people again. Back and forth, back and forth. And you say, who are the Edomites? The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Edom means red, just like Esau means red. And so these two nations who were born out of the twin grandsons of Abraham, these two nations who have family ties are at odds with one another back and forth and back and forth. Some 300 years before the birth of Christ, the land of Edom is, is then called Idumea. It was a combination of different things, but they were called the Idumeans. Now, now don't miss this in this story of Edom and, uh, and Israel. 
there came a king out of the Idumeans. Now remember, the Idumeans are the descendants of Esau, a king who Rome appointed to rule over the Jews. His name was Herod, Herod the Great. And at the time of the birth of Jesus, it is Herod who rules over Judea under the auspices of Rome. Herod was such a vicious, wicked man that when he learned there was born a child who was king of the Jews, he was so enraged that he sent soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all of the boys, two years old and younger. And Jesus and his family, of course, fled to Egypt. The whole Christmas story is marred by this vicious attack of Herod the Great, a descendant of Esau, against the newborn king, a descendant of Jacob. Not long after that, Herod the Great dies, but the king of kings still lives. These two warring nations fulfilled these prophecies and we have this incredible story. And you say, what in the world was it that caused the Edomites to be so obnoxious? I mean, when, when under Moses, when, they, when Moses was leading them through the desert, the Israelites, after the 400 years of captivity and slavery in Egypt, they came to the borders of Edom and they said, we just want to pass through. We won't hurt anything. We won't damage anything. We'll even pay you for the water that we and our, and our herds drink. And the Edomites laughed at them and said, there is no way. What was it that made the Edomites that way? Well, Obadiah tells us the answer. In, in verse 3, Obadiah says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Edom's downfall was its pride. Pride, folks, is a dangerous thing. According to God in His Word, pride is the sin of sins. It's the most condemning of all other sins. It is the sin which says, look at me. I'm a self-made person. Nothing can get me down. I've got it made. I don't need God. Do you realize that I and me are the two biggest words in the English vocabulary? that when they are in front of us, we can't see others and we can't see God. When that prideful trinity, me, myself, and I, becomes the focus, we have fallen captive to sin's snare. And we see it all the time, don't we? I mean, just look around you. How pride rises so easily to the surface of our lives. How many Hollywood celebrities slip in through the back door at the Academy Awards? You ever, ever find that out? I, I don't know that any ever do. I mean, it's who can dazzle the most on the red carpet. How many would-be political office seekers ever say, you know, my opponent has a really good point on that. I, I need to study that issue out a little bit more. What boss have you ever heard say, I was wrong to an employee. You were right. I'm sorry I got it wrong. We quote it often, but do we really, really believe what Proverbs 16, 18 says? Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Do we believe that? It was the sin of that glorious angel Lucifer, that pride 
that cost him life in the presence of God and transformed him into Satan himself. Pride is a dangerous thing. On January 28, 1986, NASA was planning to launch the Space Shuttle, Ch Space Shuttle Challenger from Kennedy Space Center. Uh, it was the first mission that was going to include a school teacher. Krista McAuliffe was on the crew. Now, the launch had already been delayed several times due to a variety of problems, and NASA was anxious to get it launched. And on the night before this newest launch date, the reported weather conditions of being extremely cold uh, initiated a phone call, a conference call with engineers uh, at the contractor which built the Challenger solid rocket boosters and motors with NASA itself. Alan McDonald was one of those engineers. On, on that next morning, with the temperatures being what they were, McDonald was afraid that the O-rings on the seal, or which sealed the Challenger's big joints, wouldn't operate properly at that temperature. He said they had never been tested below 53 degrees, and it was going to be much colder than that on that January morning in Florida. And he recommended that the launch be postponed until the temperature could, could rise again. But NASA officials were tired of waiting. They wanted the, the rocket launched, and so they asked him to sign off on it. He refused to sign off on it, and so McDonald's boss finally signed off. And, of course, the next morning, they launched Challenger. 73 seconds into that flight, Challenger burst into flames. The cause? Just exactly what McDonald had feared. The O-rings had failed to hold their seal in the cold temperature. So why, with such a professional warning, did NASA push on? Those who look back on this and have analyzed it say it was pride. For a quarter of a century, NASA had never lost a single person going into space. And they were overconfident that that success would continue. They just couldn't believe that an O-ring would keep them from a successful launch. Pride is a dangerous thing. Edom's pride made them overconfident. They just couldn't believe that anybody could conquer them. They were invincible. The capital city was nearly impregnable. The entrance to the capital city was gained only through a narrow, mile-long, snaking gorge between two enormous high canyon walls that was at an average only 15 feet wide. It was said that 12 well-trained soldiers on the other end of that canyon could defend the whole city because an army just couldn't get through that 15 foot wide but just a couple people at a time. Imagine how confident you would be if it only took 12 soldiers to defend the entrance into your capital city. But notice God's warning. I mean, who needs God when you can take care of yourself? But notice God's warning. In verses 4 and 5, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there will I bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? In other words, when somebody comes in and steals, they take only what they can carry. They don't get everything. If somebody robs your vineyard, they don't get every grape. There's a few left behind. But when God brings his judgment on a people or a nation, it is total. Obadiah was on the mark. 
The nation and its capital city were destroyed by God so thoroughly that its location was unknown to Western civilizations for more than a thousand years. It was finally discovered, the capital city was finally discovered in 1812. And if you're a fan of the Indiana Jones movies, you have seen the ancient capital of Edom. It is the city of Petra. And today, Petra is the haunt of jackals and curious tourists. Nobody has survived there for hundreds of years. God's prophecy, His warning, came to pass. The theme of the book of Obadiah is found in verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. In other words, we would say it like this, what goes around comes around. You know what that means in our vernacular, don't you? What goes around comes around. You do something, and the same thing's going to happen to you. I, if you don't know what it is, I, I think this brief video will explain exactly what I'm talking about. Take a look. <laughs> Good, isn't it? Yeah. We like to see the, the mean person, the loud person, the inconsiderate person get it in the end. What goes around comes around. As you have done, it will be done to you. Now, God is not just warning the Edomites. God is also writing a letter of encouragement to his people of Judah. Th these people that received this letter have survived the fall of Jerusalem. They are now going to be captives in this land of Babylon. And God is basically saying to them, things may look bleak, my people, but do not lose heart. Even when things look awful, God is not done with us yet. And, and certainly, God's promises came true. Well, here are three thoughts out of the book of Obadiah that I think are relevant today, and I just want to, uh, to share them with you quickly. I, I think they're as true as when Obadiah put ink to parchment. Here's the first one. God is at work even when he, it appears he is absent. God is at work even when he appears to be absent. When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, Edom joined up with the Babylonians, helped them, and then cheered on their victory. So the Edomites were kind of thumbing their nose at the Israelites. They were hoping that Judah would be destroyed. When Judah was destroyed and they see their neighbors, their family, the Edomites cheering and helping their enemy, it must have been disheartening. Where was God in all of this? Well, the truth of the matter is that the people of Judah had turned their backs on God. And so God used the Babylonian invasion as a lesson. God got their attention. And God says, I'm not done with you yet. I will bring you back. They went into captivity, and 70 years later, he brought them back. God's promises were true. But here's the go, it goes around, comes around kind of thing. The Edomites, who had cheered so loudly four years later, after the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem, the Babylonians come back and destroy the Edomites. What goes around, comes around. From the prophets, I've learned that God doesn't just care about the nation of Israel. He cares about all people. In 40 years of preaching, I've seen our culture change a whole lot. I believe that we continue to drift from God and His Word, and we do so at our own peril. 
the prophet's words are still significant and true. What you have done will be done to you. What goes around comes around. And when I look at our culture, and when I look at the future, and when I fearfully anticipate what's going to happen down the road, I begin to wring my hands, and then I remember God is in control. No matter what's going on, no matter when it seems as if God may be absent, God is in control. God has a plan. Everything will, according to his plan, come out just right. And because he is faithfully at work, we dare not be absent in our commitment to him. Second thing, God will provide justice even when vengeance seems like a good idea. If, if Judah could, they would have taken vengeance, I think, on the Edomites for cheering on and helping the enemy conquer them. But of course, they were being hauled off to Babylon. Revenge is a natural response to inflicted pain, grief, or embarrassment. You don't have to teach a child to hit back. They just naturally do that. The challenge is teaching a child not to hit back when they have been hurt. You see, Revenge is just a part of our human nature, our broken human nature, and it comes in all shapes, sizes, and intensity level. Uh, a mother who heard her six-year-old son screaming from her kitchen rushed into the front room to find that their two-year-old daughter had uh, grabbed a, a handful of the six-year-old's hair and was pulling with all of her might. And the mother rushed over, grabbed the two-year-old's hand and got the hair loose and, and, and looked at her six-year-old son. And she said, now, son, you have to be patient with your little sister. She's only two. She doesn't know what it feels like to have her hair pulled like that. Mother goes back into the kitchen, just gets in the kitchen. She hears the two-year-old screaming, runs back in there, and she says, what's going on now? And the six-year-old said, she knows now what it feels like. <laughs> it's just our nature to want to even the score, to settle the account, to take vengeance. A few years back, a Tennessee woman who tested HIV positive told police that she had been intimate with about 50 men after learning that she had the AIDS virus. Pamela Weiser, then age 29, said that she had a series of one-night stands with strangers she met in bars. Weiser said that she had contracted the virus from her former boyfriend. And then she added this comment, I was just getting revenge for what he did to me. Sometimes vengeance takes our lives all out of whack. It is an insidious motive that can become an obsession that will drive a person to the brink of destruction in an attempt to even the score. It is a powerful emotion, and it is far removed from God's plan. God's saying, you can't do this, right? You can't seek vengeance. You can't even the score. Vengeance is mine. You, you let me handle this. I will dispense justice perfectly. God says, you just let me take it from here. And, and I think the reason we want to even the score so much is because life isn't fair. Your health insurance company defaults on the day after you have major surgery, the new employee that you have hired as a favor to your friend is discovered stealing from the profits of the company. You lose your job because of inner corporate politics. Your husband runs off 
with your best friend. Your child is born with a mental or physical handicap that you know will impede their lives from this day on till the day they draw their last breath. You watch helplessly as your aging parent succumbs to dementia. The doctor tells you that you have an incurable disease and you only have weeks to live and you pound your fist on the table and you say, life isn't fair. It's not. But that never justifies taking matters into our own hands to somehow try and even the score. God says, I've got your back. You let me handle that. You just live life to the fullest for as long as you have breath in this world and let me bring justice in the end. Here's another thing. God controls the future even when it seems hopeless. It's sad but true. We've been taken in. We have been sold a bill of goods. That drum-beating energizer bunny lies. I had to replace two of those batteries just this week. They really don't keep going and going and going and going. And one would think, with a name like EverReady, those batteries would never need to be replaced. But they don't last. It started me thinking, doesn't EverSharp always have lead? I've cut down more than one dead pine tree over the years, which suggests that evergreen doesn't always mean evergreen. <laughs> will the Everglades always be a swamp, or will they someday dry up and go away? It's a reminder that not anything in this world lasts forever. There is no ever-ready, no ever-sharp, no ever-green in this world. And, and because nothing in this world lasts forever, it, it gives us this hopeless feeling, well, if nothing lasts, why, why, am, why am I doing what I need to be doing? It's just this life must be hopeless. But life is anything but hopeless if you know Jesus Christ. The only thing in this world that is eternal, that does last, that is ever ready is his kingdom because his kingdom goes home to heaven. Here's the deal. If you want to get through this world with hope, then you need to listen to God. And I mean listen to God. Too often we hear without listening. We read his word without understanding. Edom heard what Obadiah proclaimed, but it didn't listen to God's message. And the end result was utter destruction. Dealing with some personal hearing loss myself reminds me just how precious hearing can be. Have you ever thought how hopeless it would feel never to hear? Take a look at this brief video of people who are hearing for the first time. You just said you'd hear it. Yeah. Oh. Okay, you can cry. It's okay. Cooper. <gasps> Hi, Cooper. <laughs> Sounds good. 
from hopeless to overwhelmed with hope. Why don't we listen to God's Word with that same intensity? To go from not hearing to hearing to words of life. Shouldn't we be as moved with the promises of God on the tough days that are coming? And I'm telling you, folks, there are tougher days on the horizon. There is only one voice we need to hear. It's not the cry of our culture. It is not the dictates of our government. It is not the proclamations of the populace. It is not the message of the majority. It is the voice of God, and His is the only voice we need to hear. Because when this life is over and we stand before Him, only His words will matter. When His word speaks, listen as if you're hearing it for the very first time, and you know that His words are going to change your life forever. When you feel hopeless on those dark days, cling to this promise of God in the closing verses of Obadiah. But on Mount Zion, Mount Zion is God's mountain. On Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. On God's mountain, He is still very much in control. He is at work even when you can't see Him. And when all seems hopeless, you just hang on and listen for His Word because His day of deliverance is coming and His kingdom belongs to Him. You see, what goes around comes around.